When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Listen, if you're still living with bladder accidents, stop. It's time to get your life back. I was just like you until I found real relief with Axonics Therapy. It's not a pill or a pad. It's a clinically proven advanced treatment. Get started at findrealrelief.com. That's findrealrelief.com. Consult a bladder specialist to find out if Axonics is right for you. Results and experiences may vary. For more information about safety and potential risks, go to findrealrelief.com. Hello and welcome to episode 66 of Potter Rooney. I am Joe Rooney and whoever you are, thank you for subscribing and listening to my podcast, taking time out of your busy schedule to listen to my little humble podcast. This week I am talking to a man called Fikra Trench who arranges strings. Now, when I say he arranges strings, I don't mean, you know, if you've got pieces of string knocking about on the floor or in one of your drawers. He won't come round and arrange them. You'll have to deal with that yourself. He would arrange musical strings, strings and a musical uh, piece that you're doing. And he's done it for many years, and he's worked with Van Morrison, the Pogues, Phil Linnett, and Kate Bush and many more and we're going to talk about that during the interview and I'm actually going to play pieces that he's worked on and you'll be amazed that the, the very uh, the type of pieces he's worked on some of the most famous songs in the uh, world of songs many number ones and uh, he's a very modest man but he's worked with uh, some of the most uh, incredible artists alive to date so that's that's the interview just to give a little bit of a, a a background on it and I did it live in Boyle's bar in Slane Slane where I do um, most of my in, intros for these podcasts I'm usually going for a walk in Slane I'm not now I'm just hanging around my flat and uh, I'm naked you didn't need to know that but I am because I can't be bothered to get dressed for an audio thing. It won't make any difference just uh, orally, but uh, if you could see me, I'm naked. Now, uh, the last uh, week or so I've been away. I went away with Helen for an amazing weekend, an absolutely great weekend in London. We went to see Lazarus, the, the uh, Ender Walsh stroke David Bowie musical, and it was uh, just a great experience and uh, visually incredible um, I can't even explain it because it's got all these these uh, this got a video screen that's used but then it's the projection that fills the whole stage and all this stuff keeps happening that surprises you and on top of that then you've got the music of David Bowie there's a few originals written for Lazarus but many of the older ones but sung in a different way and sung with um, 
the meanings of the songs even are changed from what you would originally would have taken from them when they came out on the albums because they become part of the narrative that play out it's just great I'd recommend it uh, it's not your average uh, West End it's not West End musical it's not like that it's not like Cats it's not like Annie um, in Annie way. well there is one song there's a little girl in it and she sings in that way and that's quite interesting you know that kind of musical way uh, Annie kind of way and she sings some David Bowie songs in, that, in a good way you know yeah I liked it and I loved it I loved it it was just a great night and then and did a lot of the, a lot of the, the uh, what, did touristy things which I'd not done in London before ever I'd never been to these places we, we, we went to like look at Buckingham Palace um, uh, Kensington Palace Kensington Gardens um, Big Big Ben and uh, House of Parham. I'd never done that before strangely so um, that was great and then on the Sunday which coincidentally was David Bowie's birthday we went on a walking tour of Brixton a David Bowie walking tour in Brixton I uh, went to where he was born the house he was grew up in and uh, his first six years of his life and it's actually where he was born because it was a home birth we we were informed and the school he went to until he was six obviously and a uh, few other places that were to do with the uh, where he'd play Brixton Academy um, and then mur- the mural the Ziggy Stardust and other stuff and the, it was actually a great tour and I recommend it because it's not just a da- it is David Bowie tour but he also did lots of things about Brixton and looked at some other murals um, and then uh, he sang because it was David Bowie's birthday there was a lot of people there and there was flowers left at the Ziggy Stardust mural and there was candles and people were writing messages on the wall and um, he sang, he sang Heroes there. Then it's, I can't remember the guy who did the tour, but you could find him online. But, um, and that was quite emotional. I got a bit emotional because I was there. It was David Bowie's birthday. I was with, I was with Helen. It was our first weekend away, uh, and uh, it was it, it it was very. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. What? I, oh, and I got Brixton have um, their own currency where you can. Go to a vending machine and swap a, ten, a tenner, get a Brixton tenner, which can only be spent in the local shops in Brixton. But the Brixton, they have all denominated, well, five or tenner, fifty, I presume, I don't know, but the tenner has Ziggy Stardust on it. And, uh, and I got one of them. And of course, I'm not going to spend that tenner, so that's a, that's a good idea, isn't it? Hmm. That is a good idea for Brixton. So, I've, and I've also got a plectrum, a Ziggy Stardust plectrum that I got from the show that was on in London a few years ago of of his uh, costumes. Uh, uh, so I'm going to make a little David Bowie little collage, I think, a little bit of collage. But it was a great weekend. And then the next, what I, I went up, we went up the Dublin Mountains last weekend. I, oh, we went from the city centre. Uh, within an hour we were up the Dublin in the mist in the mist of the Dublin mountains it was very bizarre we went from a sunny day city centre to just lost in misty mountains uh, we didn't get lost but that that was good so just uh, would uh, oh who wait 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 a minute when we went to see um, Lazarus we were sitting uh, in the theatre before the show started 
and who should walk in and sit in the row in front of us? Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson came in and sat a few seats away. Um, that's the end of that story. I didn't say anything to him. I didn't talk to him, but I, but he saw him. I saw him, you know. So a uh, little bit excited. I don't normally get excited when I see famous people. I, it's not like I got that excited, but there. Yeah, he's, he's a good guy, you know. He's not like just famous. I admire his work. And now I've seen the back of his head from maybe six feet away so I'll die happy now um, well this is uh, Fikra Trench and uh, he's uh, just uh, he, 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 you're going to enjoy this uh, uh, interview it's a great chat and uh, I'll see you on the other side when I see you on the other side I think I'll be outside having a walk so uh, that's the magic of podcasting if you would like to uh, before I say this uh, I'll say it again after the interview would you like to give me five stars on, on iTunes would you like to do that just go on iTunes give me five stars come on if you like this obviously if you don't like it don't go on iTunes don't give me any stars it's just uh, <clears throat> yeah just <clears throat> walk away thanks here we go Secret Trench see you on the other side <laughs> Two of his orchestral compositions, Symphonic Movement and Overture for Brass and Percussion, have been performed by the National Symphony Orchestra. RTE Concert Orchestra performed his Summer Suite, and in 2011, the RTE Concert Orchestra and guests, including Marty Pello, Eddie Reader, Brian Kennedy, and Declan O'Rourke, performed his arrangements and compositions in a concert, a celebration of Fikra Trench at the National Concert Hall. He's worked as an arranger with Phil Linnett, Van Morrison, Paul McCartney, and the Pogues, and many more as well. We'll talk about that as they come up. He's from just up the road in Drogheda, ladies and gentlemen, composer, arranger, musical director, keyboardist, and producer, Fikra Trench. How are you, Fikra? I'm overwhelmed. You're overwhelmed by that introduction. Well, I could have done more. But, uh, <laughs> no, 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 uh, not more overwhelmed. We, would, we wouldn't have had time no. to uh, do the interview then. Yeah. Anyway, so... You uh, were you actually born in Dublin. It says on was, your yes, on your Wikipedia. Yeah. So uh, I, moved to, I moved to Drogheda when I was less than a year old. Yeah, and uh, forty two, and then in sixty one, my parents moved to Slane. Lived just up the road in a house called Kilrean, uh, which is now a, an annex to the Cunningham Arms. So there's people staying in your room. People staying in and our paying room, for yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. But they should pay more, really, if they knew who lives there. <laughs> Yeah. It's actually, uh, the, the two downstairs rooms are called Trench Room and Orpen Room, and Orpen being my mother's maiden name. Yeah. Orpen? Is that anything to do with the painter, William Orpen? Uh, she was uh, a niece, actually. Ne- yeah. I'm mm. a grand nephew. He, she was a niece of William Orpen, yes. Wow, brilliant. Right. So is that the end of the day? <laughs> <laughs> ah, thank you, good night. Uh, so you went to school in Drogheda then. What school did you go to? Uh, St. Peter's National School in, in Bolton Street. Right, uh, and then uh, did when did you start playing music? Your parents musicians, amateur musicians, yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, my my first music lessons would have been with them, and uh, and my mother, uh, well, she was a good musician. She might even have been a musician rather than an artist and a, a music uh, no, 
art educator, but she chose she chose arts, but music was always a, a serious hobby. And uh, she taught me, I suppose this style is called cocktail piano. I'll, I'll, this is what she taught me. Flourish at the end, then. Yeah. That's your add-on. I'm afraid so. That's, yeah. a, that's a modern addition, that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, did you did you start playing like so? Did you play in the churches in Granada? I did. Yeah, I both was, uh, the St. Peter's. <coughs> I was both of the St. Peter's. Yeah. yeah. Um, I uh, that was from secondary school days. I took up organ, mm. and uh, <coughs> when I was back home, I took I, up organ as well, but it was a different organ. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> The brain is your second favorite organ. Yes, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, I can't yeah. imagine what the first one you're thinking <laughs> of. Yeah, so I, yeah, I was able to uh, practice organ in both the St. Peter's Church of Ireland, St. Peter's Roman Catholic, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And so did, was that something that you, because you went to Trinity, you studied chemistry, so you weren't. You've really done your research, haven't you? Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. The internet's brilliant. Oh, no. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so was music, so, uh, a career in music, something that you were thinking of? No, um, I actually was thinking of a career in um, agriculture, uh, which is why I did. Uh, uh, I majored in organic chemistry, uh, but that's a four-year course. Uh, but by year three, it was fairly clear to me that music was where I was really at. So I was very fortunate. Once I did my BA in natural sciences, it was called. I had a chance to go to the United States and uh, do a music degree. Okay. Yeah. Uh, at the time, so before you went to uh, the United States, so yeah. you were hanging around Dublin. Was there a good music scene in Dublin at the time, or what was? Kind of yeah. Happening? Um, I wouldn't have been aware of the trad, except there was uh, uh, a What was it? There was a Piper's Club. I remember going there. Mm. You know. Um, How about jazz? But, but I was much more aware of the jazz scene. Mm. And uh, actually, I'll tell you a lovely story. Um, <coughs> the O'Loughlin brothers, I don't know if you know of the O'Loughlins, Ruin O'Loughlin and Dara O'Loughlin, they were, um, they introduced me to Dixieland jazz. Mm. And um, I joined one of the bands that they were involved in, called the, the Dublin Rhythm Kings or something like that. And we were booked to play in a ballroom on or just off Parnell Square on a Sunday afternoon. And this was a time of show bands, you know. So we're playing what to these dancers must have sounded like cacophony. Uh, if you're not into Dixieland jazz, it could kind of, kind of sound a bit cacophonous. And they're not dancing, and they're standing there, slack-jawed, and saying, what the fuck? And eventually, on a break between two numbers, one of these guys comes up, and he says to our trumpet player, he says, you know, you think you're so great. I'm telling you, you guys are fucking brutal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's Dublin for you. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, fact, they're moving out here now as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but so when you went to uh, Georgia, did you start playing then for, like, in the clubs? Georgia? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, started playing where? But did you start playing with a band or anything like that over there? Um, no, but I left the States with a band. Oh, okay. Yeah, three years later. And we played on um, U.S. Air Force bases in Germany and Italy for nine months. That Was that what kind of music? Was that rock music? No, it was sort of, well, hits of the day. And mm. also we would occasionally be accompanying the visiting cabaret artists. Mm. Um, we seemed to do a lot of James Brown and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. So at this point, are you thinking, I'm going to make a living out of music? I think that's the start of my career as a musician. Yeah. Although... Yeah. When I was in, you mentioned Georgia, I spent a year in the University of Georgia, and then two, the next two years I was in the University of Cincinnati in Ohio, and I had a gig uh, playing in the Playboy Club, <coughs> and I also had a gig playing organ in a Methodist church, and if you can imagine, you sort of you might work till two or three in the morning on a Saturday into Sunday, and then I had to go and play in the church at 10 or 11, Mm. And this was <coughs> fairly taxing on the system. So on one occasion, I took some chemical help, shall we say, yeah. to get me awake again to go and play in the Methodist church. And the mm. choir used to come up from the back of the church, from the entrance to the church, up to the choir stall where the organ was. <coughs> this was the processional hymn at the beginning. And they arrived at the choir stalls absolutely breathless because... The chemical assistance that I had had made me play the hymn about twice as fast as they normally did. <laughs> so they were running up the aisle to keep up with it. Yeah, well, that'll do it for you, all right. Um, and so at that point, what you, you moved to London then? Started. I did, yeah, 67. Yeah. 67, yeah. Right. And remained there for the next 24 years then. Okay, yeah. and this 67, so it was pretty much happening, the music industry was exploding in, in, in London at the time. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was uh, absolutely, and uh, I remember mm. f Flower Power was at its height then, you know, mm. do you know the way to something, or whatever it was called, um, Flower, with flowers in your hair? Yeah, you are, know, are you, you going to San Francisco? Are you going to yeah. San Francisco? Do you know the no, way to San Jose? Do you know Jose? the way to San Jose? <laughs> or are you going to San Francisco? <laughs> yeah, 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 that's the one. And it never ever rains <laughs> in California, that's the other one. <laughs> um... Sorry. Um, what's his name? Who did say that? Albert Hammond. Albert, Albert Hammond, yeah. 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 Did yeah. Um, and did you immediately start uh, getting involved in recording? Or um, in yeah, fairly, fairly early on, yeah. yeah. As, a, as an arranger or whatever, or a keyboardist, yeah. yeah. Uh, a band called If, is this correct? Yeah, I, I toured with a band called If, yeah. Sort of. Rock and roll, drug, drug food days, yeah. Kind of jazzy rock and roll. Jazz stuff. rock, yeah, yeah, rock jazz. So yeah. the first one, the first arrangement that I would aware, maybe the earliest one, I'd say would have been Phil Linnett. You worked with Phil Linnett. Yeah, from very shortly after Thin Lizzy had the hit with Whiskey in the Jar, I worked with him, yeah. Okay, and... It was a, it was a really sweet song uh, called A Song for While I'm Away. Yeah. <coughs> and and it's very much the... Um, the tender side of Phil Linnett. Uh, does anyone, do you want to hear a clip of the song? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so you can hear the kind of... That's not it. That's not it. No. Brilliant. Oh, yes, it is. Sorry. It is. Yeah, it's been a long time. It was the 60s. 
So that's, yeah, it is a lovely, lovely song. Like uh, Phil Lynott uh, is known kind of as a rocker, but he did he did write he some had a amazing really tender side. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know the song Sarah. Sarah yeah. for his daughter. Yeah, and it? Kathleen for his other daughter. Beautiful. Yeah. Mm. And he, had, it, it, he uh, the other thing about Lynott, I would say, is that he really was <coughs> one of the first poet rockers, and that it sense that he was a poet first who happened to use rock music as the the medium. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other people like that would be um, well, Van Morrison to a certain extent, and uh, Patty Smith and Janice Ian, maybe you know. Right, yeah, yeah. 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 <coughs> Dylan, maybe a Cohen, Leonard Cohen, of course, oh, was yeah. a poet. Yeah, yes, yes. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, when you're, how did you get, first of all get in contact with with Phil Linus? Are you? He's meant to be called Linus, actually. That's his. Oh, okay. The, the correct pronunciation, um, but. I have no recall of how, of how it came about. Mm. Uh, his producer was uh, Richard, no, not Richard, somebody Tauber, who's, who was a, a descendant of Richard Tauber, the Austrian tenor. Really? Uh, Nick, Nick Tauber. Mm. Nick Tauber was producing Linnet, uh, or reproducing Sin Linnet. <coughs> Sin Linnet, Sin Lizzie. Mm. And um, I guess... I don't know. I must have worked for Nick before I worked with. I, I don't. I really don't remember how right. it happened. And I worked on and off then with with Phil Linnish and Tim Lizzie for the next yeah. fifteen years. So and how much of a free role have you got there? Or do do you are you there from at the beginning of the recording process? Or no, not just, at all. No, no, no. The track is already laid down, vocal and more or less what you heard there. Yeah. In fact, you didn't play it far enough to hear to hear the to strings. Hear what yeah. the strings <laughs> They're, they're very good. They're very good. There, there'll be more. There'll be more. Anyway, yeah. So, so it's all done, and yeah, then you come in, and that has been very much the pattern for the, the next twenty-five, fifty years. Actually, right. you know that usually I'm faced with a, a track that's already in existence, and I'm put, adding the sweeping or whatever strings and brass. Yeah. Okay. Now I want to play another track that everyone will recognise, and it's amazing. Like how many tracks I'm going to play here that are just epic. Remember, you know, memorable tracks that everyone knows, and you've been involved in. Them. Okay. Song, but I mean that's that was uh, number one. It was uh, it was really what brought Boomtown Rats in, uh, kind of brought them away from just being a punk band. It was just it's, like it's really strange you should play that. Um, mm. I was talking with Johnny Fingers, who was the keyboard player on that. Mm. Uh, he lives in Tokyo. So I was talking with him mm. two nights ago, and he was saying that after they had the success with that record. Which is just piano and Lynott's voice. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, who are we talking? Geldof's Geldof, voice. Yeah, sorry. yeah. yeah. Oh, it's all happened such a long time ago. I'm in my 50th year of this. Um, mm. Where was I? Yeah. Uh, so it's just him and Johnny on piano mm. and, and the strings that I added and, and, and other things. And 
the, the, Johnny Fingers was telling me the other night that the rest of the band, when it came to actually performing this, the rest of the band said, well, what are we going to do? You know, we didn't play on it, you know. How about sit back and just enjoy it, you know. But, mm. it, but, but Johnny Fingers made the point that very often the biggest hit that a band has is atypical of the rest of their output. Mm. I thought that was an interesting observation. I, I'd love to be able to give you another example straight away. I can't, but I'm sure it's. it's a, I think it's probably a, a good observation. Yeah, well, I think maybe Phil Lennon had that problem. That a lot of his <coughs> hits were nice, lovely songs, and he struggled with the idea that he he was a rocker and that, mm. that he had a hit with something like Sarah. Yes, I yeah, remember yeah. him talking about that. But uh, how do you feel about like something like, say, for example, I don't like Mondays. I think if Johnny I don't like Tuesdays as well, by the way. Right, okay, <laughs> <laughs> they're all. Crap days, really. Yeah. Uh, but uh, um, Johnny Fingers would have come up, say, uh, would he have got a writing credit on that song? That's a very dangerous question. I know. Because <laughs> that's in the courts. At the moment. Well, it has been sitting there for a long time. Because I actually did a gig, well, I it compared a gig in New York with, with Bumtown Rats playing and Johnny Fingers wasn't there. So Yeah, no, uh, he, I think he's, he's been out of the picture for some time. Yeah. yeah. But like there are a lot of songs like that, for example, "Walk on the Wild Side," where the bass line is is really what kind of you would say makes the song. Yeah. Uh, and I love the story of that bass line. Okay, yeah. So the original. Uh, um, so that's we we'll say that's uh, a bass guitar, right? Mm-hmm. And Herbie Flowers, who was later the bass player in a band called Blue Mink, if you. Anybody remembers yeah. it? He said, you know what's not really good on this? It would be if I played up. <laughs> so he's playing bass guitar there, and then he adds his, his string bass there, mm. and he gets a doubling fee. Do you, think you mean he gets paid twice for the session? Yeah, because he's done two passes. But, I mean, he should have got paid more, probably. <laughs> <laughs> it's very but, much part of the song. I, um, uh, our friend Shay Healy, has a wonderful take on that, a, a piss take on Walk on the Wild Side, which is called Walk on the North Side. All right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. Shay's a good man. He's yeah. a good man. Yeah. So uh, you, you don't... How do you feel, though, about that whole idea of a musician coming in, say, on a session, and they're only on a session fee, and then bringing something to a song that seems to bring it somewhere else? Uh, is the, it, it's, it's been a contentious issue forever. Mm. The, the guy who played drums on Quite a Shade of Pale... He was mm. a jazz drummer. Uh, he cl- he made a, a big thing about that. You know, he contributed to this hit record, and he should be in for a cut or whatever. Mm. But what about all the other records that all those sessions musicians played on, which didn't do a diddly squib, diddly mm. squat? You know, you know, you know what I mean. So it's uh, it, it, okay. So 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 Herbie contributes that. Mm. But, but Herbie might have played on numerous other tracks, which which never happened. And he never you know? bothered uh, asking yeah. for royalties. However, <coughs> there is recompense because nowadays musicians who have performed on a track, as long as they're listed, uh, get uh, royalties as as players as performers. <coughs> it's a, an Irish organisation, non-profit organisation called RAP, which stands for Recording Artists and Authors. Yeah. No, I, so, so there, you, there is you have no beef there on that no thing. no I have no beef okay. no. So, though I would like to have had quarter percent on uh, um, 
Yeah. What was that when you played Trinity Taylor? Oh, no, oh, no, no, no. I don't like Mondays. Yeah, Here's yeah. another one that you did. So you're back with Phil Leonard. And oh, this the old Covent like, Garden. Oh, yeah. I remember only too well. It's a brilliant song. Everyone loves this song now. It's kind of real. It's actually it's very unusual. Uh, uh. It's, uh, it's quite sort of jazzy uh, yeah. kind of chords. Very on rock and rollish, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful song. Beautiful song. How, do you know anything about how Phil Lennon? Wrote? Did he use guitar? Did he just sing a tune? Um, or did, pass. I never witnessed mm. that, but I would imagine he he would just have done played the guitar and yeah. sang over it. Yeah. Right. But I, I don't know. And over the years, I mean that that's uh, that was eighty two. Mm-hmm. Four years later, he was dead. Like, did did you see that he it was going that way, or could you tell? Uh, he he wasn't very well when he was in there. That's mm. all I can say. Yeah. I went to the memorial service in, in a church in, in Richmond upon Thames in London for Phil and Snowy White gave a eulogy and it was, it was very beautiful and a lot of, a lot of love and a lot of admiration there. But I remember seeing something afterwards for the first time in my life. The, the greed of paparazzi. Caroline Browder, his then estranged wife, but still, you know, obviously very much involved getting into the limo and these guys with their cameras getting any angle possible to, to get, get a picture of this woman in in her grief you know mm. i just I, I later i remember seeing the paparazzi hanging around a, um, a gymnasium in chelsea where allegedly diana princess of wales used to um, work out and they'd have little ladders to get this camera up over the wall and all that mm. just I have such a distaste for mm. for the paparazzi. Yeah. And is that maybe something that at least you've worked on all these great songs, but no one's going to recognise you? Is that kind of a blessing that um, you, you you can live a life? Yeah. Well, Sandy Newton says fame, fame is the toxic byproduct of being an actor. You'd know about that, wouldn't you, Joe? Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's famous for five minutes. No, I, I did about <coughs> twenty years ago. No, I I I I'm <laughs> I'm not recognised in the street, um, mm. and uh, I. Not really known. I'm just. I always say I'm the small print on the back of a CD cover, you know. And, and maybe that's all right with me, you know. You're happy with that. Was well, fame something that you ever yearned for? Or? Not really. No. I uh, love the idea that that somebody 
can, it, I, I think it's partly to do with an attitude. If Diana Ross walking down the street of New York, everybody knew it was Diana Ross. Mm. She had a swagger, you know, she was, she had her furs and whatever. If Diane Keaton walked down the street of New York, nobody noticed her mm. because she dressed down, as you know, that was yeah. her, part of her style, but also she had a different attitude, you know, so I think that's part of it. Yeah, and I, I, love, I love the idea that Bob Dylan might actually travel on the dart, you know, and, and just He's just sitting in the corner there reading the paper, you know, or listening to his headphones, you know, and, and people not notice, you know. I think it's probably possible. I think a lot of these people like Madonna or whatever want to be seen. They want to be recognized. Um, so they, yeah, they're yeah. lacking in some way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never get Madonna on the podcast <laughs> after that now. But, uh, <laughs> now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a track here. Uh, this is, of all the tracks... This just stands out a mile from all the stuff that you've done. I hope I can find Oh, yes, here we go. So I wouldn't have connected you to this at all. That's not you singing, but... Uh, <laughs> not uh, Does everyone remember this? It's, it's probably a... <laughs> but anyway... I, will I play more? Oh, go on, yeah. Yeah? That's a big keyboard. This is amazing stuff. So, like, this is amazing stuff. Um... So you were working with a, a DJ called Ian Levine? Ian Levine. Ian Levine mm. was uh, hugely into Motown, Northern Soul. He was from Blackpool, which I kind of think has a, a Northern Soul uh, mm. mentality. And uh, he, he was the DJ in Heaven, which was this gay nightclub mm. underneath Charing Cross Station. Massive place. So he was very, very much into this. He initially engaged me as an arranger and uh, doing strings and brass and stuff. And gradually the strings and the brass were supplanted by what's on there, which is entirely electronic. Mm. It's a a machine called Fairlight, which uh, was made by CMI, Computer Musical Instruments, Australian team. And it's all samples which I'm playing from, from this machine. Or actually, uh, I tell a lie. It belonged to Hans. It belonged to Hans Zimmer, and I think he programmed most of it. But uh, it was my arrangement. Okay. Mm. And the only sort of real human input is Evelyn Thomas's voice and the two backing singers who worked with him. So I, mean, it, we, I went from using quite large string sections and brass and over on on orchestral disco to that, which has hardly any <laughs> untouched right. by human and, hands. You know, what was that kind of were you going to be uh, an alternative Scott Aiken Waterman? Was it going well, to be uh, uh, Levine Trench? <laughs> <laughs> well, we we kind of ran in parallel with, with Scott Aiken yeah. Waterman, I would say. Yeah. yeah, that's still that's still the biggest record I ever made. Yeah, yeah high energy. You know, it's it's I still I still get royalties from that. What's it? That's nineteen eighty four. Is eighty four? Yeah. Correct. So yeah. it's what thirty. 33 years ago. Still see a little bit of royalties from that. Right, yeah. And it's been, uh, there have been many versions of it, you know, where people have sampled it so they can right. use it elsewhere. Uh, and were you composing as well in that? Yeah, that? yeah, no, no. Yeah. That, no, no that, that was me as a co composer with Ian, yeah. yeah. Right, right. Co producer, whatever. Yeah. 
Right. That's a, a big, big difference to all the stuff you and and do you like was that kind of music you were in? Like, can you say I'm into that music? Or are you going? I just want to make a hit. You know? <laughs> <sighs> okay. Um, <laughs> Hmm. Yes. You're right, okay, yeah. Oh, no, I can't remember what the question was. The, que- the question <laughs> didn't... Uh, it wasn't a yes or no answer I was looking for I, there. I did, I did an interview... Uh, you, mem- you, you mentioned that, that show, uh, the, the uh, concert that RT Concert Orchestra did in, yeah. in 2011. It was Celebration of Fear for Change, very modest title there. Yeah. And Catherine Thomas was standing in for whoever used to do the, the 9 o'clock to 10 o'clock slot on RT Radio 1. I can't remember who, who used to do it. Was it? It wasn't Pat Kenny. Can't remember. It doesn't matter. Anyway, Catherine Thomas was standing in. And she asked me, uh, sorry, I was doing a sort of promo, as it were, for the concert. Yeah. And she asked me a very long question. I can't remember what it and, and I said, yes. And I could see her sort of freeze there. <laughs> she was hoping that she might get a little bit more from me. <laughs> Whatever it was, she asked me. Yes. So an interviewer's nightmare is yes. yes I am. No. I am. I, I'm an interviewer's nightmare. Well, I, I gather from that then that it wasn't particularly music that you, that you were... No, I, listen, what, I've, I'm not ashamed of anything I ever did. Mm. And I can say, with, with very few exceptions, I've enjoyed everything I ever did. Yeah. But there are other things I prefer. <laughs> yeah, I know. I I can I get that. And <coughs> here's the big one. Ed. There was Christmas Eve, babe, in the drunk tank. An old man said to me, "Don't say another one." Sang a song, the rare old mountain dew. I turned my face away and dreamed about you. God, I'm the lucky one. Came in late into one. I've got a feeling this year. be a lot of people's favorite Christmas song, which says something about an, an antipathy to Christmas, really, because it's definitely an anti-Christmas song, whatever you say. It is. Yeah. It, well, it is, and it isn't. I mean, we all love Christmas, but Christmas is a time when you do get drunk and you have arguments. And, um, right, well, um, that's perfect, then. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was the second uh, <coughs> biggish song that I worked on with, with the Pogues. The previous one was called um, Rainy Night in Soho, and the producer Brilliant. producer was Elvis Costello. And I remember we were doing the strings at um, 
Air London, which was a George Martin studio over Oxford Circus. And uh, Elvis Costello told me, he said, I was so excited, he said, when I, I, I came up, to the, uh, came to the front door there, there's a gaggle of girls hanging around. And one of them came up to me and said, Elvis Costello. And he said, yes, yes, yes. Could I have your autograph, please? And he said, oh, yeah, sure, sure. It, it's for me mum. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it's, uh, we, we all get old. Um, yeah. So then uh, the, the, the fairy tale in New York, um, I met with the, um, with the band, and they gave me as a sort of influence, we would say, Marconi, any of Marconi's uh, music for Once Upon a Time in America. Um, I'm not quite sure that I can hear. The, 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 there's a, there's a counter melody there that maybe sounds like Marconi, but but anyway, it was it was a it was a nice sort of I don't know influence to be given. And that was a the producer, and that was Steve Lillywhite, who's a huge producer. He's also produced. And it's you his, too, and his wife, who sang the female parts in Fairy Tale in New York. Indeed, mm-hmm. Kirsten McCollins. Absolutely, yeah. But Steve had never worked with a string section before. We had quite a big string section, 30, 31, which is fairly large for, for a commercial session. And um, he, he was, I think, to be quite, to be fair, I don't think he, this was doing him a disservice. I'd say he was a bit cynical, you know, you know, all these string players, because he he would have done strings from. Uh, some kind of samples or whatever, you know, spend uh, staying up all night trying to make it sound moderately real. And uh, <coughs> we did Fairy Tale New York, and I think the session took an hour and a quarter. I mean, string players, in common with lots of session players, they would have the ability to play straight away. You know, it's a performance straight away. You know, mm. from the page they can just read it right. and they get it. You know, so an hour and a quarter, we'll say, is over. And meet Lily White after saying. It's so quick. I must do this again, you know. So, and we did. Yeah. Mm. And, and uh, so, for uh, can you tell me a bit about the process then, maybe of writing a string section like that? Are you are you writing actually physically writing it down, and um, are you playing a bit on the piano? For years, I worked. I didn't have a piano, so I was entirely working by ear. So I'd have mm. uh, this is even before cassettes. It was I would have. Um, a version of the track on a reel-to-reel tape recorder yeah. and headphones. And I'm just sort of singing against the track, you know, finding lines and so forth. It was very good um, discipline not to have a keyboard because yeah. it had to trust my inner ear. Um, after a while, I, d- I did buy a piano. Remember that? Uh, 75, I bought a piano. <laughs> I, r- I, wrote, I wrote a song for Carmel every day f- after I bought the piano. Did you? Yeah. Did he? Yeah. That was, was quite, quite a few. Yeah, 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 yeah. With yeah. Scott Joplin yeah, yeah. on Sunday morning. I, which I didn't write. Yeah. And, <laughs> and um, where was it? So oh, yeah, so so now I have a piano, and uh, and it it actually undid me in a sense, because I would think, um, you know, kind of, So formerly I would have heard that in my head, you know, that's, you know, first violin, second violin, violas, cellos, whatever. Now I'm trying it out on the piano, which is a great mistake, because the piano is basically a percussion instrument. I mean, I suppose if I had done so. That might have been a little bit closer. Mm. So it did actually slow me down. I I, I stopped trusting the inner ear, and I, I started wanting to hear it mm. there. Yeah. So before the piano, you're literally 
imagining it in your head and writing back yeah, then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And to most rock and roll musicians, that's probably just incredible. That's the, yeah. Well, they have. To, like, to well, a they lot have of people, that's incredible. <laughs> well, yeah. Everybody has their individual whatever talents and ways of doing things. Yeah. And you think of, you're thinking of writing different parts for different instruments as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I so. do a lot of my writing, I mean, in spite of the fact that, the, as I, I say, I tend to use the keyboard now and it, it goes somewhere, but I do a lot of writing first thing in the morning when I wake up and I'm thinking about it. And I, I see here notes in my head. And the other thing, I, when I'm walking the dogs, I do a lot of um, rumination about Oh yeah, if the violas played the G sharp, then the second violins could have the B. I mean, it's just, it is mechanical. It sounds cold and mechanical, but mm. it's like you know, I've already got the concept of what where the arrangement's going to go. I've now got to think about how the notes are distributed amongst the string orchestra. Right. String orchestra is typically divided into first violins, second violins, violas, cellos, basses, like. Um, and can, do you think in terms of an emotion, a, a type of emotion you want to... Uh, yes, better get this thing done because <laughs> <'cause> <laughs> it's, due and, and it's due to be recorded okay. the day after tomorrow. Is that an emotion? It is, <laughs> yeah. yeah. A deadline, yeah. yeah. Deadline. There's yeah, nothing yeah. like a deadline yeah, yeah. to get you being creative. Yeah. Now, I was thinking, though, the, what, what, when you show me the songs that you've worked on, arranged strings for, like that, to me, that is a kind of a love song. One of the greatest love, it's not a love song in a way, but it's, it's a breaking down of love, but mm -hmm. it's still, to me, kind of a, yeah. I would say a love song. And then one of the greatest love songs ever written. That song alone would be, I think, most people would say that's it. I'm about to die happy. Ah, uh, so, you know, it's okay. I'll go happy. Yeah. <laughs> but not too soon. When you hear a song like that, can you can you separate yourself from having worked on it? Um, the separation occurred when I was watching an American uh, TV series, a mini series, whatever, and they played that song during a passage where there wasn't, wasn't dialogue or, or whatever. And and then I could be objective and I could just sort of think, oh, yeah, that, that works there. You know, yeah. I, I could detach myself from the the actual process of having written it and directed it or whatever. You know. mm. On the same session as we did, Have I Told You Lately That I Love You, I don't think you have it there, is Coney Island, which I think is an extraordinary... Uh, no, I don't, I don't think I... I haven't done that. On no, that no, I've done that. Coney Island... Uh, 
remember. But Coney it's, Island is uh, mostly talking. He's talking, it's talking, talking over, absolutely over, over, a, over a music in, yeah. instrumental backing. Yeah. Yeah. And I said to, to the engineer, uh, look, uh, I said, put on the light. This is, this is, we, we haven't touched it yet, right? Mm. I could see it's coming up. I said, put on the light, meaning the musicians now know their first take, their first reading is going to be the performance. And that's what's on the, on the, on the disc. It's actually, they're playing it for the first time. And they, they, it, 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 to me, that's um, a measure of the, what musicians of the caliber who will be playing on sessions bring, you know, in that mm. sense, you know, that they can actually, they sort of see it on the page, they get it, they actually give a performance from the first reading. Mm. I think that's very special. So as what somebody said, let's hear it for the penguins, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's interesting uh, just to think about the difference between a session musician or a classical musician yeah. and then a band, because a band are usually, they are not really in control of their instruments, <laughs> they're struggling. And that, that I know Brian Eno would say that is what makes a lot of rock and roll, is that they can't play that well. Like say a band like Joy Division were basic musicians and yet their music is amazing. Well, how do you feel about that? I, I hear that some extraordinary music has come by the sweat of trying to get it together in the recording studio mm. or whatever. I can, I can appreciate that. I'm not sure that I personally would have the patience for that mm. because I'm a, I'm a more bookish kind of musician, you know, and I, I, I want things to happen more quickly. Mm. I remember somebody, uh, Pip Williams, who was producing status quo in a studio in Sweden and his description of how long and I'm sorry status quo of how long it took for him Pip to get the drummer actually playing in time by cutting little bits of tape out and so so really? you know. But the end result is is, is wonderful. Um but it's just that the the uh the hard graft, the hard work it is to get to that point, you know. But it makes a band, like, I, I don't know, sometimes it's just the chemistry between four people, even though one of them, or maybe all of them, can't play. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> that, I still I still believe in punk. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then they can always get someone like you to make this song actually sound uh, good. <laughs> I think I've seen the best of bands who really are on top of their craft and who've done their homework. They've, they've mm. like rehearsed it. They've even played it on the road. This is a bit like the Marx Brothers. The Marx Brothers mm. routines. They worked on the, uh, on touring the on the road yeah. before they ever went to film. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm also saying there's a parallel there. The people who write their songs and try them out on the road and work them on the road and hone them on the road, when they get to the studio, it's a it's a polished thing and it's ready to go. You know, mm. they're not using the studio to to do that work. They're they're using the the, the live experience and, R and, right. and the evolution of the song to 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 get the to get it to a polished state. Oh yeah, yeah. So they've written them, they've played them 120 times or whatever, and then yeah. they're in the studio. And then they're in the studio. In the studio. Yeah. But that always the first album. That's why the first album is always great. The second album, they're touring and trying to write an album at the same time. That's why the second album is... <laughs> the difficult second album. The difficult second yeah, album yeah, 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 happens. Yeah. Yeah, I've never had that problem. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, so yes, you worked on Coney Island. That was on Avalon Sunset album. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, what, like, Van Morrison has a reputation of being a difficult man to work with. Uh, I don't want you to, to you know, you don't talk shock. Well, I haven't... Mm. 
had I haven't seen that difficult side because uh, most of the time I won't say I've been peripheral, but I've been just as you, we were talking about earlier. The track is already laid down. Mm. Then he engages me, you know, with, uh, put strings in this one and maybe some brass in this one and so forth. So and and Van, and Van typically does not come to the recording session when I'm doing the strings or the brass. You know, he just mm. lets me get on with it, which is kind of flattering in a way. You know, you just you know go and do your thing. Laterally, I have actually been playing on the tracks. I've never toured with him, mm. but um, I, the, la, the the most recent album. Um, Keep Me Singing, which, which is actually one of the best he's done in quite a few years, I think. I, I played on, on the basic sessions. Oh, um, yeah. That's not why it's one of the best he's done. <laughs> uh, and, and yet, he was actually he was in fantastic form. He, 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 uh, he, was, he, you know, he was joking, and he said, it was, it was actually, it was a pleasure to do. You know? mm. but, but, he, but he does get impatient in the studio. It's all first takes. Is it? Yeah, and I remember on a previous uh, some sessions that where I did also play keyboards, we had laid down a track, and he'd he'd obviously taken it home just the single take, right? He'd barely have time to learn the song, and it, you know you're off and you're recording, mm. and he'd taken it home and he'd listened to it, and he came back and said, "No, I want to do it again," and he sang different words. Yeah. That wasn't why he did it again. It's because. He'd be bored singing the same words again. So he's a bard, you know. So so these mm. new words just flow flow out of him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you think that would have just happened on the spot? Yeah, absolutely. Improvise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is definitely a, a huge improvisation there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's incredible. So I'm going to play another song. So you got Fairytale New York, and this one I couldn't believe you worked on this one. <laughs> This is like, this was number one for 16 weeks. 16 weeks. In fact, they had to stop producing it to get it off the number one spot. It was an altruism because they wanted somebody else to have a chance. Really. I mean, I think uh, another round of applause there. Uh, okay. <laughs> I uh, the the concert with the very modest title that you heard about earlier, Celebration of Freedom Trench, twenty eleven, with the national with the uh, RTE concert orchestra. Uh, Marty was one of the people I asked if he would come. Marty Pello. Uh, Marty Pello from asked if he would come and perform, yeah. and uh, he said, "Oh yeah, yeah, okay." So, uh, uh, and he chose to do Julius Says and something else, can't remember. And I said, would you ever do Love Is All Around? No, actually, I said, sorry, I said to his manager, I wonder if we could get him to sing. And his manager told me that uh, since the relative, uh, uh, since the breakup of Wet, 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 although they, d- they did band together again after that, he, he had resolutely said he would not sing Love Is All Around. And he's even offered silly money to do it at a private party. And he said, he so I and so his manager said, "Well, you try and see if you can do it." So I said, "Marty," I said, "I'd be thrilled if you'd do this." And the musicians uh, in the orchestra who actually played on the record, they'd be thrilled. 
and the audience would love it. And he wrote back, he said, All right, draw the man, you foxy devil. <laughs> <laughs> and he did it. And his manager was was amazed because that was the first time he had sung it outside of the uh, um, envelope, what's the word I want, en- enfolding, whatever, of, of uh, being with Red, Red, Red. You know, oh, really? Was, that was the first time. He wouldn't time. even sing that on his own on, solo. As a solo artist. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey. fair play to you, char- yeah. you charming man. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, that, that's like a massive. Hit. I mean, that, they did actually have to stop producing it in order to get it off number one. Something they, like that. Yeah, they yeah. just actually stopped yeah, making yeah. the vinyl singles. Yeah, I think it was vinyl back then, wasn't it? I uh, don't know. It would have been. It would have been. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. vinyl again now, by the way. Oh, it's vinyl now. It's oh, kind yeah, of a hipster yeah. type Absolutely, thing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I don't think anyone plays those. They just buy them and walk around town with them under their arm. <laughs> Uh, now the next guy you play with, I'm going up to 1990. You played, you re- arranged strings on a Paul McCartney song, same time next year. Yeah, um, I was working with Linda McCartney. I was coaching her uh, and uh, playing keyboards with uh, with wings and um, showing her how some of the songs, you know, what she might do on them and so forth. Mm-hmm. And one day I arrived there and she said. Uh, you know, you're not working with me this morning. It's at their house in uh, St. John's Wood. You're not working with me this morning. Paul, Paul wants you to do an arrangement. Well, in fact, these, there were two arrangements. This was for an album called Wings at the Speed of Sound. There was uh, the songs I did strings for were called The Note You Never Wrote. It's actually Paul's song, but Denny Lane uh, singing the lead vocal. Mm. And a rather lovely sort of small song with just piano and a few other things called uh, Warm and Beautiful. But subsequently... Paul asked me to do strings on a song for the film same time next year. This was really just, a, what should I say, not a demo, um, a, a draft. No, I can't think of the word. He, he was offering, mm. you know, he was asked, given the opportunity to write a song which could be the end titles of the film same mm. time next year. So Paul wrote a song same time next year, and he asked me to do strings in it, and. Um, we had 69 string players, 18 first violins, 16 second violins, 14 violas, 12 show, and so forth. Paul had seen a picture of the London Symphony Orchestra, and he counted all the players, and he said, right, that's what I want, 69. So, uh, yeah. and he didn't get the job, by the way, so it became a, a very uh, lavish demo. demo. <laughs> right, yeah. exactly. Apparently he didn't get the job because the lyrics to the song gave away the plot to the film. Well, (laughs) (laughs) there was a bit of that. But Marvin Hamlish uh, wrote the score for the film and and he actually did the end end title music. So, like, working with Paul McCartney, is that nerve-wracking? I mean, the Beatles, they're royalty. No, no. I mean, he's he's a bloke, you know, he's he's all right. Yeah. 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 No, he's he's okay. Right, yeah. It's very easy, very easy. And but it's partly meeting somebody away from the public eye, isn't it? You know, I mean, I'm just in his home, you know, or, or having a cup of tea, or smoking something, or whatever, you know, together, and that's that's it, you know. Right? Yeah. So he's yeah. just, he's just yeah, a bloke. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's just a bloke at the end. Yeah, of bloke. Yeah, even, yeah. Even yeah. Bowie. Yeah. Yeah. Bowie probably just didn't walk around wearing platform shoes and silver suits in his house. Probably just slippers. Anyway, uh, so that'll be cut out as well. Anyway, 
Um, no, but there was a great, uh, Reeves and Mortimer used to do a great, uh, sketch. Did you ever see that sketch where it was like Slade and Bowie and, uh, they were all just sharing a house and someone had to make breakfast and stuff? No? But it's funny, it's just funny to imagine all those glam rockers yeah, yeah. just hanging and, around the house and, looking. <laughs> and one of them had to, uh, actually, Make breakfast. Is that for the oh. for the rest? Is that what you're saying? Was, yeah, just do normal things that you do around the house, but wearing yeah. the glam gear. Oh, okay. Which okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it was hilarious. Yeah. You'd have to see it anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to fly through a few people. You've worked with Sting, right? Sting. No. Right? No. no. Okay, no. you didn't. No. <laughs> uh, I don't know why I've got Sting. Kate Bush. Yes. Uh, Banana Heron. Banana Heron. Uh, she sang a song, but in in Gaelic. In Gaelic. Yeah. Uh, her, I think one or both of her parents were Irish, but she had not grown up speaking Irish. She mm. learned the Gaelic phonetically, and I remember uh, some of the river dancers when they heard that record of Kate Bush singing Mona Hair, they thought, "What an amazing job she'd done!" Because her 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 Irish is impeccable, mm. albeit that she learned it phonetically. She had no idea what she was singing about. Right. The song is about a dirty old man who's trying to lay all the women of Ireland, as far as I can tell. Mm. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we did that uh, with strings, uh, and um, Donald, Donald Lonnie was the producer. Yeah. 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 And she yeah. was another person. We wrote, after the session, where should we go now? So is Donald, Kate, her engineer, stroke, I think then husband, and myself, where should we go now? Oh, we're going to town. We all got on the top of a double-decker bus and went into town. And I just, you know, we were talking about if you don't have an attitude, you just travel on the dart or the Lewis or the or the bus, you know. Yeah. Because who's going to say who's that's, say, that's yeah. Kate Bush on the bus? Oh, Maybe she looks like or, Kate Bush. Yeah, not yeah. Someone might There's think. no way that's Kate. Well, that's, could be could be Kate Bush. Not I'm not traveling on the bus. No, no, no. Yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah, yeah I think I think yeah. anyone could probably yeah. travel on, on uh, uh, public transport if they uh, didn't draw attention to themselves. But uh, that was a very long sentence. <laughs> um, I, I actually I did meet Sting. Sting uh, said to, I was comparing that gig. Uh, that was uh, Boomtown Rats, the Stunning, and Ash and Monday. They were is in New York, and I was backstage just wandering up and down, uh, pacing, and a, a, a baldish fella walked by, and I just went, "How are you?" And uh, and then he just touched my arm and went, "Well done." And just when he spoke, I knew it was Sting. Oh. And so. Uh, yeah. It's not something I can put on a poster, really. Yeah. Well done, Sting. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> 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 it's pity he didn't say, I'll give that five stars or yeah, 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 most yeah, funniest yeah. act I've ever seen. Nice one, yeah. yeah, anyway. <laughs> uh, I think you actually admired a, a Sting track, Seven Days. You, were, you admired, you admired yeah, the yeah, uh, yeah, string arrangement. So. And yeah, I, I now, So I want to talk to you, before we finish up, we're going to wrap up in a minute, what about other people who have arranged strings Mm-hmm. And and if you want to talk about it, so if I could play a track, maybe you could talk about it. I don't know. Would you like to do try that? It, try it, yeah. So there's a guy called Vince Mendoza. Yeah. Correct. Okay. He has worked with Joni Mitchell. Yep. Uh, both sides now. We all know the song Both Sides Now. Let's let's play, say, the original version for a bit. <laughs> Of angel, so we all know, we all know this one. 
then we get this version, which Joni Mitchell recorded. Okay. I, I just want to say, I, I think there's a wonderful uh, American arranger, Vince Mendoza. Uh, I, I just think that's extraordinary how out of that kind of very um, amorphous is not quite the right word, but it's, it's the opposite of crystalline anyway. It's, 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 it's diffuse, it's fog, it's whatever. How she comes out of that yeah. mist and finds her place. And I, I, just, I just think that's that's 20 years after she, her original recording of it. It's just a story. It's fascinating hearing her original recording. It's so beautifully raw. And fairly soon after Joni Mitchell recorded it, um, there was Peter, Paul, and Mary, and maybe the Carpenters, I'm not sure about that, and others who kind of sanitized the song in some way and made it much more normal. Her original version is so wonderful. And that version, 20 years later, with his strings, is extraordinary. And I think you're thinking of playing one more version, which I might have had an involvement in. Yes, I'm going to play that now. We'll talk about it in a minute. So that's um, I was that's Big Retrenches version yeah, actually. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, an octet of cellos, and in fact, in this instance, they are the eight cellos of the National Symphony Orchestra of Ireland under the umbrella Cello Ireland. I've done quite a few arrangements and now some compositions for them. I went back to listen to, in spite of the fact that I love that beautiful Vince Mendoza orchestral version of it. I went back and listened to Joni Mitchell's original, and I've taken a lot of her voicing and her the the, the openness to, to for that version. Okay. And that was where was that recorded? That was uh, it was live National Concert uh, Hall. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. 
short at the end there but you will ha- I will put that up on uh, on my YouTube channel as a visual it was all filmed on, cam- on camera and uh, uh, the whole thing will be up there so uh, thank you Fikra for, for doing that uh, interview and thank uh, you for subscribing and if you uh, would like to go on iTunes and give me a a rating, five stars, please, and I would be much obliged. Or even a review, a review, a review would be nice too. And uh, that's our first one of. Is that our first one of 2017? I can't remember. No, there was another one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's our second, I think. So, uh, yeah, there you go, Tootly Pips. No, it's our first one. I'm pretty sure it's our first one. Off. Do I care? Who cares? Right. Uh, what a good way to kick things off, anyway. And uh, there'll be many more in 2017. Um, so uh, just to keep things going, to keep uh, me um, uh, just feeling that I've get, I'm getting some feedback here. You can get you can get uh, me on, on Twitter at Joe Rooney One. And uh, I have lots of gigs coming up as well in, um, well, I've got, you know, in the Dundrum Mill Theatre and my own gig that I run in Drada and lots of other uh, gigs coming up, including one in the 8th of March in Yonkers in New York. And uh, I may have another one in Connecticut, but that's not definite, and a couple in, in Chicago. And on the 17th of March, Patrick's Day, of course, I'll be in Leeds with uh, singing with a band and doing a bit of stand-up. But all these details will be on my website, www.joerooneycomedian.com. Here's my dog, scratching herself. Are you scratching yourself? Yes, you were, but then you got all distracted. Now you're jumping on me. Say something. Say something. Okay. No talk. No talk from the dog. Ah, there you go. I think that was a positive review. Um. So, uh, yeah, as I said, yeah, yeah, all my stuff, all my digs are on my website, and uh, I'd love to hear from you and give me a, give me a review. Just go on. Go on, feckin', get on your laptop. Go on iTunes. Just put a five-star up there, man. And, and and just say something really nice. There's some great reviews up there actually. I've only I've only just seen them recently. Uh and they've been there for some of them have been there for a year or so, but uh silly me, I didn't look. And um it's, uh, it just makes me feel good. You know, if I'm you know what I do is I just get out of bed in the morning and I just read one of the reviews and then I just set up for the day. So, um that no, I don't do that. Come on, but oh well. I'm going to head off now. You can hear the. You might be able to hear the river. Can you hear the river? I don't know if you can. I don't. I have my headphones on. So um, thanks again, and uh, talk to you in a f- in a week or so when I've got my next interview up. Yeah. Good luck. 
Cheery pips, cheery pops, chibity pop, chibity pop, chibity pops. Thanks for listening to my podcast. Oh, I'm going to put a bit of music at the end, and that will be uh, Freaker Trenches music. Uh, and I may put a song up from my son Daniel as well. You find at the end of every podcast there's a, a little song after the end music. So I'll stick a few bits up there. Uh, Daniel Rooney is the son he does the some of the stings as well on the podcast and uh he's uh he he's i'm very proud of him he's he's a good chap i thought i'd have him i'm going to get him on the podcast soon and have a chat with him uh just to find out what he's up to okay right see ya bye 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 <laughs>
parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today.